Uh, let me explain. Uh, well, let, let me comment on what's going on as record cases and full hospitals are upon us. And that is uh, the totally dissonance, uh, dissonant response to the pandemic. I mean, it, it, we're on two different planets when it comes to dealing with a pandemic. There are people, and I, I'm not even going to say which side I'm on because it's unfair for me. Because I'm working, I still have a job where many people were not. Granted, I had to take a haircut. Now, that was interesting because I had to take a haircut, but I couldn't get a haircut through the pandemic. Hmm. Hmm. That's very deep. Think about that. It's very metaphysical. And so, you know, those of us who have jobs, uh, it's easy for us to say that uh, public safety is the most important thing in the world. For those of people who don't have jobs, they're going, hey, we still have to eat. And if it's a 99% chance that I'm not going to have uh, a job, uh, I don't know. Let's uh, a 99% chance that I'm not going to get the virus. Let's relook at this. Now, is there any kind of a middle ground? Of course there is. You can still work and have social distancing, but uh, you know, let's even look at a middle ground. How does a restaurant stay in business with uh, 25% of its clientele of its customers allowed to eat there? Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's not an easy answer any way you go on this. Uh, but we have uh, people, uh, the churches, uh, businesses, uh, bars, beaches filling up at the same time that hospital beds are filling up. And we're looking at, and the word explosion is being used, especially if you talk among uh, health experts, most of us tend to look at Dr. Fauci as sort of the poster boy in term. Okay, I can't say boy. As sort of the poster child. Well, that's pejorative too. As sort of the poster person who is uh, leading the charge. And I would, I would argue he is the go-to guy and has talked about, and he, and he talks like the chairman of the Fed does. Man, he parses his words so carefully uh, that uh, he talks about the possibility, but it looks at numbers. And I look to him and a lot of us do saying, this is the guy who knows what he's talking about. And he relies on medical health experts throughout the country. And he relies on what the CDC says. And uh, there is the total dissonance between those people. And where is the dissonance uh, at the top of the heap? Uh, the Trump administration downplaying the numbers. Pence has called the concerns uh, of another surge of infections overblown. The product of media fear-mongering. The president has said testing is overrated. And uh, the confirmed cases only makes us look bad. The more numbers of confirmed cases, the worse we look or the worse we look. What is that about? Think there's some denial out there, to say the least. And some governors, Republican governors, have followed the lead, uh, saying the rising caseloads simply mean more testing. Well, that's fine, except tell me about the rising hospitalization and deaths. That one I'd like to see. You explain that one away. 
you can test, you can not test, you can put it on paper. And when someone goes in the hospital for COVID, that that's a problem trying to trying to explain that one away. Now, to their argument saying it's only certain places. There are places where there was tons of close contact, people to people, the demonstrations, uh, the bars, especially Florida, Texas, where you had bars, we had people hanging out in restaurants, the beaches, and those were seeing a lot of increase, except where we're not seeing a lot of increase. And that's one of the things we're seeing about this uh, the, about this virus is there are hot spots and there are other places in the country uh, under the exact same circumstances, the virus is not spreading. You take a, a beach in Florida, which is different than a beach uh, in along the uh, along the Gulf Coast, and you'll have different numbers with with approximately the same number of people hanging out hanging out at the beach, and the same lack of social distancing. So we don't know much about uh, we don't know much about this virus. What we do know is every expert has told us. Social distancing and masks. That's it. That starts it and stops it. You do that, and you're going to be uh, in much better shape. Not in good shape. They're simply talking about a reduction of the number of deaths by maybe a third, which is still enormous because when you figure 100,000 deaths and you can reduce that number to 70,000 deaths, that's, that's a big hit. So, oh, Pence today is speaking, I think, at 9 o'clock, where he's going to address uh, the virus. I wonder if he's going to go the other way and talk about the dangers and sort of reverse what the administration said. Uh, let's, flick a, let's flip a coin uh, where both sides are heads and call it heads. I just think it's interesting. We haven't heard from the Coronavirus Task Force oh, no. in almost two months. Yeah, they've shut it down because it contradicts what the president says. It completely contradicts the message. And there is not one person on that task force, any medical doctor, any expert, epidemiologist, virologist, well, like Fauci's head of infectious diseases, that's willing to back up the president and said this is no big deal. Uh, Testing is no good. Uh, The fear is overblown. You will not see any of those. So here's the answer. You just don't let him go public. You shut him down. All right, so uh, last night, uh, the Justice Department filed an 82-page brief at 11 p.m. Joining 17 states in arguing that Obamacare should be repealed in its entirety. So last minute, well, the deadline was midnight. So, okay. You know, it wasn't a, oh, let's sneak it in. No, it was the midnight. They got it in before the deadline. Uh, but here's the problem, I think, that the uh, this is the administration that did this has. And uh, that is the fact uh, that it's very important for the administration and these other 17 states, Republicans, uh, invalidate the, Ob- the Ob- Obamacare during the pandemic. I mean, look at the optics. While we're dealing with this pandemic, and by the way, the administration is saying it's no big deal. The administration is saying, eh, you know, uh, we're overrating it. Uh, The media, as Pence said, uh, a lot of this is fear-mongering, the worry about the pandemic because of the media. 
uh, testing isn't important or testing should be reduced. The president says, while that's going on and we are scared, genuinely scared, the administration is downplaying it, but at the same time arguing that Obamacare insurance for 23 million people should be eliminated. And, and I think this is the big one, pre-existing conditions for 123 million people should be eliminated. At the same time, we're having the pandemic going on. And even to the point where uh, the previous challenge, there's been two previous challenge uh, to the Supreme, uh, that hit the Supreme Court, where, Cong- uh, where the court basically upheld Obamacare and its major provisions. Um, at first, the uh, administration argued that pre-existing conditions, that's the only thing left of Obamacare that should stay in place. One thing. They've pulled back. Now, uh, pre-existing conditions also gone in their argument. And the entirety of Obamacare is uh, unconstitutional. And it really, well, here is the basic premise. A little bit wonky, but that is there are three major provisions to Obamacare. One of them was rendered by Congress to be ineffective. The court ruled that also. And therefore, Congress intended that all three kick in. And if only two out of the three kick in, therefore, the whole thing is invalid. That's the gist of uh, of it. And the Supreme Court is probably going to hear arguments uh, probably after the uh, election. The Republicans have said all along uh, with the president, we have to repeal and replace. Okay, I understand the repeal. I got that. You're moving forward. Balls to the walls on repealing. Let's talk about the replacing. What? Oh, we don't have anything at this point. Well, don't you think it's kind of important to replace it? No, not really. Because if you remember during the course uh, early on uh, during the administration and even during the campaign, the president said uh, we must repeal Obamacare because if you don't have Obamacare, you're going to have big, beautiful uh, medical care. Without mandatory insurance, you're going to have better medical care. With no insurance, the doctors will be at a better job for you. Now, for those people that are looking at medical bills and those people that are talking to folks in the administration when they're getting into hospital and you're looking at what you have to sign and how much it's going to cost you, remember, it's better for you to do that than not to have insurance. During a pandemic... Where people by the tens of thousands are in the, actually hundreds of thousands are in the hospital, if I'm not mistaken. Or have been in the hospital. The Democrats look at this as a winning issue, and I agree. Nancy Pelosi, in a statement uh, also late last night, if the president gets his way, 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions lose it. Uh, 23 million Americans lose their health coverage entirely. So, uh, there you go. What do you do with that? And this is a question of, uh, I'm going to argue, total denial on the president's behalf. And even with his advisors, and I'm sure his advisors are saying, Mr. President, this is not the time. You know, the business with the wall and how terrific it is keeping out illegal immigrants, it's not the time. He double downs. He's doubling down because that's what the president does. And uh, which is why he is tanking in the polls right now, except 
in, in his eyes, he's not tanking. Remember that the polls are, uh, are reported by mainstream media, even Fox, strangely enough, but it's all lies. The whole point of publishing those polls in which he loses is to uh, destroy his presidency. That's the only reason, not to actually report what polls are about. It's simply to destroy his, his presidency, his candidacy. And internal polling that the administration is doing shows he, quote, has a strong position. That his position is strong relative to Biden, not any real numbers. I mean, it's uh, the optics of this thing. I think you're killing him, just killing him. All right. Uh, Part of uh, what's going on, man, what a week it has been. What a couple weeks it has been when you talk about uh, both the protest movement and uh, the uh, literally rethinking of America in terms of racism, accepting that it's there. And I want to make a point here. Uh, Because uh, my position has always been, uh, I have no problem, uh, and I've had no problem in recognizing that there is racism. For example, uh, uh, black while driving, uh, which police, I've heard policemen after policemen say, oh, no, no, we don't believe in that. And I go, that's a crock, and it always has been a crock. But uh, my position has always been, it has gotten a lot better in terms of civil rights. Look where it has gone from, well, the horrors of uh, what racism held in this country all the way from slavery through the Jim Crow laws through prior to the civil rights movement uh, to separate but equal. I mean, it went on and on and on. And those are all gone. You don't have Jim Crow laws anymore. You don't have separate but equal anymore. And there still is uh, inequality across the board, health care, education, job promotion, et cetera. But my position is that it's always been, it gotten better. Well, uh, and I think it's fair to say, and this is what the protest movement has shown to all of us, it may have gotten better. And I don't think anybody is arguing except people that are absolutely adamant about we're still effectively in the days of slavery. But it hasn't gotten better enough. Or fast enough. And uh, we have to deal with that. And I think this protest movement has made that the death of George Floyd has uh, been a game changer. All right. With uh, that being uh, said, it all started with, and uh, look at this, it's gone from simply police misconduct uh, to looking at society as a whole. And that has taken off globally because racism is global. I mean, that's that's who we are as people. You know, effectively, people that are different than us, we just don't look uh, at the same way. It's that simple. I mean, that's just human nature. And in many cases, we're forced to do that by societal pressure, in some cases, the law. So with that in mind, uh, yesterday, the House uh, passed, Democratic House passed its police reform bill, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2020, 236 to 181. The bill now goes to the Senate where it's going to go no place. And even if it did, the president said he would veto it. And here it is. Both sides need a police reform bill. Both sides. There is no issue. Now the devil is in the details. And it's not even so much details. It's some big issues. Uh, 
um, each party introducing its own bill. Uh, The Senate, the Democrats rejected the Republicans' proposal, and the Republicans have rejected the Democrats' proposal. And now it's going to stall in the Senate. Now, there is some overlap, right? Uh, The use of body cameras should be used by all police forces across the country. Lynching, making it a federal crime. Who's going to disagree with that? Uh, Incentivizing state and local police departments to ban the use of chokeholds. And here I want to make an important point. As Congress deals with police reform, in reality, Congress has, uh, the feds have very little to say with police reform. Police reform is a local issue. It's city by city. Or it's county. Or it's state, state highway patrol, county sheriff, city police department. Those are the people, those are the entities that pass the rules. Policing is a local issue. When we talk about the feds, uh, that's the federal policing, not local. When the president talks about uh, making flag burning uh, a crime or bringing down statues a federal crime, only on federal land. He can't do it. He can't say in California, in Orange County, we're going to make it illegal. We're going to make it criminal. No, he doesn't have the right to do that. So as we look at this big picture, now they can, there's two areas in which uh, the feds can, in fact, uh, have a great deal of influence and pass laws. One regarding civil rights. If a crime becomes a federal civil right, then the fed, then federal law can kick in. But you can't have every time a police officer, every misconduct, a federal crime, use of batons, federal crime, uh, use of tear gas, federal crime. Ain't going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. You have a Tenth Amendment issue. You have uh, historical. You have precedent of uh, the states have certain rights. And what's going to what's being argued here is that all of the state's rights, the city's rights in terms of running its own police force is eliminated and the feds will come in. Uh Uh-uh. It's not going to happen. So where's the real power? The real power is money. It's money that the Fed grants to police departments. And virtually every police department out there gets some form of money, either subsidy or equipment or outright grants. And that's really the only control. And you have police departments who don't get any money and could just tell uh, the government, the federal government, to go, go pound sand. You can pass all the laws you want. We're still going to use tear gas. We're still going to use rubber bullets and try to make it as some kind of a civil rights issue. Go ahead. Try it. We'll take it to court and you're going to lose. All right. So the difference between the two bills, uh, Democrats are saying no to Republicans. Republicans are saying no to the Democratic bill. The Democrats passed a bill in the House yesterday, overwhelmingly, mainly along party lines. Uh, I think three Republicans switched. And What they have in common is uh, ramping up the use of body cameras, which, by the way, won't be mandatory because local law. And there are police departments like LAPD that have to have uh, uh, cameras 
policy. Sheriff's Department in L.A. County don't. They don't have cameras. And then there are uh, various police jurisdictions around the country that not only don't want cameras, police are never wrong. Doesn't matter when, doesn't matter how. So it runs across the board. So the big issue is, and this is federal police, uh, is... uh, uh, first of all, banning the use of chokeholds. Both parties agree that's good. The big issue, though, uh, where they disagree is qualified immunity, giving cops a ton of legal protection. And there are two sides to that coin, of course. Uh, and uh, the Republicans leave that alone. They're not saying anything about it, but they're leaving it alone. Uh, qualified immunity uh, makes it just a lot tougher to nail police. Uh, and other uh, employees, public employees. Uh, The Democrats are saying that uh, the Republicans' bill, too heavy on data collection, not enough on the legal challenges. And also uh, the no-knock warrant, where uh, the uh, Democrats are adamant about they want to get rid of no-knock warrants in drug cases. I mean, they're okay with no-knock warrants in, uh, for example, terrorism cases. So they're not being completely crazy on this. And no-knock warrants are a big policing tool. I mean, a no-knock warrant, you have to go to a judge, and upon reasonable cause, the judge allows uh, the police to come in, and they take those battering rams. You know, you've seen those in the movies all the time where one of the cops is, you know, one, two fingers, and then three, and then boom! In goes uh, the door crashing, and then sometimes flashbang grenades are thrown in there, and the police come in, and uh, they're with the Democrats saying that's not going to happen when it comes to drug cases. And so they're not going completely nuts like those people calling for uh, getting rid of the police, defunding, and no non-lethal force being used. Because people do get hurt and people do get killed with rubber, bu- rubber bullets, with tear gas uh, that are being shot at too close a range. Uh, therefore, let's eliminate all of that. See, that doesn't make a lot of sense. No-knock warrants in drug cases? Yeah, that makes sense. We can talk about that. Chokeholds? Well, you know my position of chokeholds. There are two kinds. One makes all the sense in the world as far as policing, and the other one kills you. All right, so uh, everybody conflates that. And uh, then the issue, I don't think anybody disagrees with cameras. Man, I just love cameras because that's part of holding the police accountable. Because up to this point, uh, one of the reasons you couldn't nail the police, two reasons. Number one, qualified immunity. And the other one is uh, the police always came up with their story, backed up by other police. And whenever you had a suspect being beaten to a pulp, it was because the suspect resisted arrest. And all the cops said the same thing. Yep, resisting arrest. Well, now we have video that shows on In many cases, that's not the case. George Floyd, for example, saying, I'm not resisting. I can't breathe. If it weren't for the video, none of that would have appeared in the police report. And you've seen contradictory statements. And uh, this is where the police are getting uh, a lot of negative press. And uh, this is not helping the cops. Because not only... Uh, are statements being made that contradict what uh, the video shows. There is no cop out there prior to this that would ever say anything about a police officer that was engaging in misconduct or excessive force. You don't do that. You don't snitch on your own police colleagues. That's it. You don't. And even if you can actually see uh, it happening, 
you don't try to, especially if it's a superior officer, you don't even try to stop it because your career is over. Well, in response to that, first of all, in response to the uh, video contradicting a lot of these statements, uh, you now have uh, the local and state laws being passed that say it is a crime for a policeman who sees that happening not to intervene. I mean, life is changing, that's for sure. Uh, so the big issue is the qualified immunity. And uh, the data that the Republicans want before going forward, I like the idea of data. Data is always good. You want to take time to really look at it. You have to. You can't just jump on it, uh, especially when passing far-reaching laws. All right, now, uh, Steve Gregory, who has been covering uh, this issue of the protests and uh, certainly the uh, police response, and, uh, and I mean 18 hours a day uh, for weeks now. Uh, Steve wakes up early in the morning and then uh, goes to bed very late at night and has absolutely no life, so yeah, it, well, it's, it's helpful. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Uh, I know that, uh, Steve, you're having uh, a special this Sunday at 4 yep. o'clock, and it has to deal with all this explain uh, and policing. Yeah, yeah sure. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a new ongoing series called KFI News Presents. It's, uh, we're going to do policing for the future. It's, it's, you, all this talk has been about changing police departments, reforming police departments, but we're going to start to explore what that looks like. And we're going to try to start at the ground level. First of all, we need to let people know what is happening before we can explain to them what might change. So, for instance, this Sunday, I've, I've got in, it's a very rare opportunity, the captain in charge of Force Investigation Division of the LAPD. And what is Force Investigation? Yeah, so that's the unit, the division that investigates all uses of force within the department. It doesn't matter. It could be a slap, a slap upside the head. It could be an, a, a fatal shooting. It could be any use of force is investigated by this division internally. And um, they they really are the gold standard when it comes to investigating uses of force. And they have absolutely, they are truly an impartial body in that their their whole role is to investigate use of force. They don't, they just put it all together like they were investigating any case and then hand it over to okay, the Okay, with that being said, the politics that, just for a moment, one of the major moves of uh, the protesters, and I'm part of this questioning also, is... Uh, not only how effective it is for the police department to investigate its own, mm -hmm. and no matter how uh, objective it is, the optics. Sure. Uh, now, are, do they deal with? Now, I'm I'm assuming the police departments are dealing with optics. Well, they have no choice. You, that's probably one of the reasons that um, I'm being allowed to interview this person this weekend because I think they realize that they're going to have to sort of um, uh, let people know, pull the curtain back, let them know how they do business. Now, mind you, at the same time. The Sheriff's Department, LAPD, and other lo local law enforcement will all be giving detectives into a task force, which is another issue we can talk about uh, with the blessing of the DA and the Attorney General's office. They will be con uh, you know, basically putting together this multi-agency officer-involved task force, and they will start to investigate all of these officer-involved shootings when they result in a, in a fatal outcome. So they will start to investigate this. It's going to be a, an outside body a collection of different investigators from all the different agencies. But it's still police investigating police. It is, because you, you, 
They know how to do right. it. Right. That's the other question. <laughs> the other who, question. who are you going you and to I don't get? Know how to investigate right. and a that, shooting? And that is the practical application right. when you say there has to be an independent body. Well, comprised of whom? Right. And how do you uh, how do you uh, man those bodies uh, when you have people that have 25 years of experience in the police department and the rest of them don't? The key to that will be having stakeholders outside of the vocation of policing that will be helping to look in. So some, you know, like some. Community people will be involved in this process as well, sort of like the civilian oversight committee that already exists with the sheriff's department. So the program this Sunday, what I'm really excited about is getting him in here to talk about uses of force. A few years ago, the force investigation division did something that was really unprecedented, had never done it in the history of the department. And that's they hosted a media day and they invited a handful of us up there to see firsthand how they investigate an officer involved shooting. What they did was it, we went up to the training center, the Davis Training Center up here in North Hills, and we were outside, and they were talking to us, and all of a sudden, a shooting happened in front of us. Cop cars pulled up. A guy had a knife. They get out. They start talking to the guy, and then they shoot They shoot the guy, and he, he goes down. Then all of a sudden, the reporters became witnesses. And I'm going to tell you something. We're trained observers. You had uh, You had nine of us, I think, there, and we had nine different versions of the event. And it was a fascinating case study to show just exactly how they go through this process. And then after they took our statements, they pulled us all to the side, like they do at a scene, interviewed all of us. They interviewed the cops, and we got to record them interviewing the cops, just like they went through the whole process. And then later, they came in, and they said, well, here's the results of the investigation. And they said, and they named us by name. You saw this. Well, he saw that. Richard Winton saw this. Uh, You know, Sid Garcia saw that from the other stations. And it was hilarious because... We all didn't see it the same way, and that's part of the problem and the challenge. So I want to talk about this Sunday, how these things are investigated. One of the other things I'm really excited about, too, is talking to Lieutenant Robbie Williams, and he's with the Hawthorne Police Department, and he's just been interviewed in an article with People Magazine, so I'll tell you about that. Lieutenant Robbie Williams is with the Hawthorne Police Department, and People Magazine just did a feature on him called Too Blue to be Black, Too Black to be Blue. And he talks about his struggles being a black man and a police officer and some of the things he has go has gone through and, and does go through and how he uses community policing to reach out, how he educates others in his in his department to see things through his lens. And it's I I read the article. It's really well done. So we're going to get his perspective. And then uh, for those of you that have been listening for a long time, go back to November of 2014 and uh, this this night when I was on with Tim Conway. Just a ton of gunfire just a few moments ago. We all had to dive down onto the pavement. I assume they were shooting it into the air, but there were like a group of four or five girls near my car, and we all just dived down to the pavement. Across the street from me right now, a storage shed, a storage facility, like one of those storage rental facilities, is on fire. The main office is there. It looks like the entire front building is engulfed in flames. People are just standing around watching it. Now a string of cars just coming by on the road. People hanging out of there, cheering, and basically just holding up their hands. Oh, wow! Hey, is that the cop Timmy, shooting? Hold them? on, hold on. No, hold on. That was uh, Ferguson, Missouri, the night I was on the air and had to dodge the gunfire and got attacked, and my cell phone stolen. Um, and I, it, I. Pulled that up last night. I was looking for it, and I found it, and I listened back to it, and I you know, just got these. You found your cell phone? 
Yeah. No, uh, I found the audio. Oh, I had, okay. I hadn't listened to it in a long time, and uh, I tell you, it really brought back a lot of a lot of uh, really um, uh, scary moments, I guess. So that, if you think about it, the Ferguson, Missouri uh, unrest was sort of, to me, was sort of a pivotal point in the kind of the modern civil rights movement, the shooting death of Michael Brown, the unarmed black teenager from the white officer, Darren Wilson. Um, I'm, again, very, very pleased that uh, this Sunday the chief of the Ferguson Police Department will be joining me. And we're going to, he's the new chief. Uh, and he's a, he's a black man that came in from Georgia to take over the department. And we're going to talk about his reforms. I mean, he's going through now, and it's kind of on the backside of a lot of the reforms that other agencies are just going to have to start to explore. So we're going to talk to the chief about that that night, that incident, why he decided to go to Ferguson, Missouri. Why would you take that on? I mean, it had a lot of consent decrees against it, a lot of oversight, a lot of federal lawsuits, all kinds of things. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm assuming that uh, maybe not, but I'm going to make this assumption that the uh, the police philosophy of you back up your fellow cop no matter what is on its way out. And the police understand that that is a real problem. I don't know that it's going to be on its way out as much as it's going to be modified. Okay. I think. I think a lot's been made about the officers that were standing to the side. Uh, you know, you're talking about the George Floyd. Video. Yeah, that's and that's just one incident. Right, the other incidents right. are where you where the video totally contradicts what all the police officers say happened. Right. In a given scene. Sure. I I think that the the blue line will be strained. Okay. I think the that that blue wall, as they say, that blue wall of silence. I think a lot of that's going to be strained a bit. Officers, I've been talking to now. Here's the thing, a lot of officers. Feel really good. You know, good. You know, a lot of good cops. Oh, yeah. We know a lot of good cops, people that are genuinely interested in helping and they they want to do good and they they they're they live in the communities. They want to protect their communities. And you talk to them and they just feel so downtrodden right now. I mean, they just feel like just really uh, just deflated to the point where policing is uh, become uh, not only a danger, but it doesn't happen where the police heretofore would have gotten involved right. in a public safety issue are now pulling back. Yeah. I mean, they're afraid. They're afraid to engage. And listen, just so just so people know, as, as we move forward with this series, we're certainly going to be talking to people from the black community, people, stakeholders, those who have had a role in, in wanting to bring about change. We're going to explore every side of this. As many sides that exist, I'm going to attempt to cover it. Steve. Uh, Thanks, buddy. Uh, as always, thank you, sir. Uh, we'll talk again. All right. Uh, I don't know if you've been to a restaurant, uh, but social distancing clearly is uh, part and parcel of it. And I went to uh, a couple weeks ago, went to the smokehouse uh, just down uh, the street here uh, from the station. And the social distancing was extraordinary. It was not just every other table, it was every third table. And it just felt weird that the table, uh, that the restaurant was the third full. And then, of course, the waiters uh, in uh, their protective garb, and which is a weird situation. So a lot of restaurants are trying to make it more comfortable. And uh, they're putting in stuffed animals uh, at the tables where uh, that are empty or should be empty between folks. And in a couple of cases, mannequins uh, to uh, lifelike mannequins dressed uh, up in regular clothes and uh, sitting with uh, tables with full table settings. I mean, sort of crazy stuff. But it's a question of making people more comfortable. There's actually some science behind it. And there's a professor of social psychology and neuroscience at Dartmouth says, the more realistic you put these figures in, the uh, actually it's a bad idea. 
stuffed animals are fine. Why are stuffed animals fine? Because they're not a threat. They're, you know, just kind of fun. Everybody laughs and has a good time. The mannequins and people that sort of look, uh, you think the more human-like it looks, the creepier it gets. So if you go to a restaurant that has um, anything close to a mannequin that's separating you from the other people to make it look uh, more full and more like an inviting place, uh, you're going to feel terrible about it, mannequin. Uh, because uh, it, this uh, phenomenon was identified by a Japanese roboticist. And uh, the more human-like a non-human object looks, uh, like a robot, a mannequin, the more unnerving it is. And you ought to try it yourself. I love underlying science stories that uh, tell us weird things. And uh, this is one. So you've got cutouts, ridiculous looking at stadiums, where like in Korea. So it looks like the whole place is uh, full of people except... Two-thirds or uh, 85% are cutouts. And uh, I love the stuffed animal ones where, I mean, there's one restaurant that uh, the tables are filled with stuffed pandas, the ones that aren't used. And uh, yeah, pandas, I guess, are okay because they're friendly and they're warm and they're inviting. And uh, you can ask for Chinese food and they go, but this is an Italian restaurant. And you turn to a stuffed panda and you just sort of shrug and that works out. But this is, uh, I mean, there are all over the place. One restaurant in South Carolina has blow-up dolls. And uh, the owner said, well, but wait a minute. Before you think uh, blow-up dolls in that way, these are in very good taste. I didn't know they made blow-up dolls in very good taste. But they dress them, and they put them at the tables, and that ostensibly... Uh, makes people feel better. I have not yet been to a restaurant where they did things to make the tables between the tables we sit at more inviting to make the place uh, friendlier. I will tell you, uh, which why uh, I looked at the story and I've said this, this is a good story because the few places that I have been to, those empty tables, that's unnerving. That is strange. And you couple that with uh, the protective garb that everybody in the restaurant uses. Man, that's a weird feeling. I remember having dinner there, and uh, I looked at uh, the few people I was with, and I said, this is really strange, and everybody agreed. Uh, Now, is that the way we're going to dine from now on? Uh, Who the hell knows? Uh, Until the vaccine comes. Once the vaccine comes, I think we're right back to normal. Uh, Well, there's uh, Jennifer Jones Lee sitting in the booth with her mask on. Well, I just walked in from the restroom. Uh, Yeah. I even saw Gary Hoffman walking down the hall with his mask. And I've never seen him in a mask before. See what happens when we get snitched on. Yeah, I'm still looking. We're still looking (laughs) for the snitch. uh, Who grabbed us. And there's what? How many people? uh, Six people, right? That are working here. There's not very many of us. No, no, sure. it's it's not as if we're at a, a baseball game or we're, we're at a club. Very funny stuff. These mountains move. Let the rain come down, and I'm pushing through. Yeah, 'cause I'm a weatherman. And uh, good morning, everybody. Bill Handel here. It is a, a Friday morning, June 26, and. Uh, it's a pretty auspicious day for those of us uh, that are in uh, the broadcast uh, business. Uh, Fritz Coleman, who has been on KNBC for just a whole bunch of years, 39 of them, 
uh, is leaving today. Tonight is his last broadcast, and uh, Fritz has been kind enough uh, to come on the show uh, because he knows I'm going to say good things. Uh, you know, I'm not going to rip into you. Fr- <laughs> hey, Fritz, uh, what a day. It has to be bittersweet for you today. It's really interesting, Bill. First of all, it's an honor to be on with a great Bill Handel. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, you're not working anymore. You don't have to say that. No, I'm. I, I am a listen. I was in radio for 15 years and understand what it takes to rise to the top in this very competitive business. And you've had an amazing career. I feel. Uh, I don't know how I feel. I'll tell you. People have been astonishing. My station has just been blindsiding me every day with little surprises. And uh, and I've heard from people, I've heard from former bosses and former work folks, and, and you know how it is. We, you, you, we, we really don't know how we affect people. You know what I mean? Uh, how, how they've reacted to the way they've been treated by you or um, how they've responded to your career. And I mean, I have been I have been astonished at some really lovely connections I've made over the last couple of weeks with people who I started with and who I mentored. And it's been a, a beautiful gift, I'll tell you, sir. And uh, I'll, I'll be able to process this in a couple of weeks and look back with hindsight. Yeah. But right now, it's 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 amazing and uh, interesting. Yeah. By the way, you have to take a uh, a, a shot of a, a screenshot of the uh, Costco sheet cake uh, that uh, KNBC is going to serve this afternoon for you because <laughs> they really enjoy you very much. Hey, um, what are you now? What are you going to do now? Here you are, and you're not the kind of guy that turns around and retires. And I know you've done stand up the whole time. Oh, before I get into what are you going to do now? Did you get into broadcast as a result of your stand-up, or did you develop yes. that afterwards? Yes. No, it's, uh, it, that, that was I, – I am the beneficiary of maybe the greatest stroke of luck in show business since that woman was discovered at Schwab's Pharmacy. I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you exactly how it worked. Uh, I came out here in 1980 to do stand-up, and coincidentally, my friend who I had been in radio and TV with earlier, John Beard, who was an anchor man at Channel 4 for many years, brought his boss to see me perform at a cabaret in West L.A. called The Horn, which no longer exists now. It's like a honey-baked ham or something at 26th and Wilshire. So he brought his boss down to uh, see me perform. And uh, I had told an anecdote on stage of having done the weather when I was in the Navy. I worked for Armed Forces Radio and Television in the Navy, and I did the weather but didn't know anything about it. But this didn't seem to uh, matter to my superiors in the Navy as long as I did it with a good attitude and my shoes were shined. Uh, It didn't matter that I was completely clueless about the science of weather. And I told a little story about that on stage, and apparently that resonated with this news director. And so after my show was over at the horn he came backstage to introduce himself and he said i know this is a really weird question but do you have any desire to do some vacation relief work for me at channel four i need help on weekends i need vacation relief my main weatherman hasn't had a vacation in a year would you have any interest in doing that and i was making 45 dollars a night doing comedy i thought oh my god as i got down on my knee when would you like me to start <laughs> And he said, well, you have to audition. So I auditioned the following week, and uh, I got the job. I did vacation relief, and I was sort of the utility player for a couple of years. 
than my predecessor, who was Kevin O'Connell, that took Pat Sajak's place when he went to do Wheel of Fortune. Kevin left to go to CBS, and I was bumped up to the main job, and I'm just finishing 39 years, 40 years in December. Honest to God, I, I look back on it, and I can't believe it. Yeah, I just was a beneficiary good. of some amazing good luck. And there have been some changes, but uh, there are people that are there and seem to never go away that are fixtures. <laughs> uh, Chuck Henry. Oh, I, I, you know that Chuck Henry also was in Armed Forces Radio and TV. Yeah, he was. And I was right. thinking, and I, when I was a lot younger, I was thinking of going into the service, and I remember writing him a letter. Uh, about the possibility and what his experience was. And uh, wow. he had a lot of influence on me because he completely ignored my letter. Didn't pay attention to it at all. And, I'm going to bring that up to him yeah, today, years, and I'll do it with great joy. Yeah, That'll years later, I, well, I said to him, and he said, oh, yeah, I don't know, I get a lot of letters. Well, what the hell do I care? And it was... <laughs> so what are you going to do now, Fritz? What, uh, what does the future hold? You're ending today to Monday morning, you wake up, and now what? I'll wake up slightly later. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I'm going to just continue what I do. Uh, if if there is live comedy performance ever again in the future, not Zoom-oriented performance, I want to be a part of it. I, 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 you know, like many other comedians, had about a year and a half's work of work evaporate with this pandemic. I had lunches and dinners booked and small theater engagements, and I don't know if clubs are going to be back for a long time. So I'd love to do that in the future if it, it gets healthy again. I'm really involved with a lot of nonprofit organizations. That's a really important part of my life. And so I'm going to be more active, be on more boards and have some fun with that. I'll be very busy. I have two grandchildren. My family lives around here, except my older son lives in Denver. And I'll, I'll, I'll be busy, I'm sure. I, I looked at quarantine as sort of a retirement halfway house. It gave me an opportunity to sort of step halfway down, and as it turns out, I'm really enjoying it, so I think retirement's going to be fine. You know, and I want to give you some kudos here. I've seen you uh, do your stand-up uh, a few times. You are genuinely funny, and you don't uh, drop the F-bomb too many times. Matter of fact, it's about as clean as it gets. And uh, well, how, do you, how, do you, how do you get employed uh, being a clean comedian these days? Well, I'll tell you, Bill, uh, it's, uh, it's self-monitoring because, first of all, when I started in comedy, in order for you to get on The Tonight Show, which was the key venue you needed to have to launch your career back before everybody had their own half-hour, an hour HBO specials and stuff, you had to work clean in the clubs because if the talent coordinators came and saw you be blue in a club, they wouldn't, they'd, they'd be afraid to book you. So there was that, but also... In order for my bosses at, at Channel 4 to continue to allow me to perform, my bosses, all of them, have said, we don't care what you do. I don't want to get a call about you at the station. Don't bring embarrassment to the station. So in order for me to be able to continue to work without getting uh, you know, uh, busted by my superiors for embarrassing somebody yeah. in a club, I had to work pretty clean. And honestly, the discipline of it has stood me in good stead because I've been getting, I, I get more bookings, the kind of bookings I want to do for working clean than working dirty. Right. And, um, now, uh, are you going to do television again? Or are you done in front of the camera? I, 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 I am retiring from weather. I will consider all options. 
All right, and instance, now you... Dick Wolf comes and decides he he needs like a, a master sergeant on the Chicago PD show or something. I'd be happy to entertain that. I, I'm I'm finished with the weather, and truthfully, uh, the the weather jobs are so different now. I couldn't get the job now because you need to have the AMS seal, the American Meteorological Society seal. You have to be a meteorologist because of the increased competition in television. There are three times as many television stations doing weather than when I started. And also, with climate change and stuff, you have to have scientific credibility a little bit in order to get the job. And I certainly couldn't have gotten a Bachelor of Meteorology degree. I'm really bad at math and science. I would fail miserably. So yeah, but you're, it's a different time. But you're funny, and that, that works. That's right? all that matters. That's all Back that when matters. I was in Javal, that's what it was. There was no change in weather from April to October. They just wanted somebody that could have some fun with it and keep people from tuning out. It certainly worked. Uh, Fritz, uh, tonight's your last uh, broadcast. Hey, tonight you can say anything that you couldn't say in the 39 years. I cannot wait for my last day. I already have the notes. And I'm going to, what are they going to do, fire me? Really? I don't know. Yeah, I know. I, I'm just worried. I'm just trying to keep it together. Uh, you know, when people start to get a little emotional, yeah. it makes me emotional. I just want to keep my head on straight. Yeah, yeah don't worry so about we'll it. We'll see. Yeah, I won't do that. All right, Fritz. Uh, take care. Good luck and uh, congratulations. Love, love hey, to talk. Hey, Bill, I appreciate it. It All was right. an honor to be on with All you, right. my friend. Thanks Keep so much. Good work. All right. Uh, I, I'm such a huge fan of Fritz. He is so funny, incidentally, when he does his stand-up. All right. This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.